God nailed a perfect, comprehensive record of every sin you have ever or will ever commit. He nailed it to the cross, and for those hours, He poured out His just wrath on Jesus so that Jesus paid in full your debt. It's gone. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How often do you examine your own life for sin? Is there a pattern of disobedience? Are you in need of forgiveness from anyone who might have suffered from a past offense committed by you? Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Tom has part nine of his series today titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. We'll look at the fifth petition in the Lord's Prayer that deals with the reality of sin in every believer's life and the need for confession. Jesus teaches his followers to pray like this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In this fifth petition, Jesus teaches us that there are three crucial responses to sin in general and three crucial responses to specific sin in your own life. Are you in need of repentance? And if so, how will you respond today? Let's join our teacher now to find out more on The Word Unleashed. Let's look again at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We began to study the last three petitions in the Lord's Prayer. Of course, the first three are about God, about His glory and His kingdom and His will. These three are for us and for our needs. We looked at the fourth petition in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And we saw that that deals with all of the physical needs of this life. We are to ask God to provide on a daily basis everything we need to sustain life here. For food, for shelter, for clothing, for health, for jobs, for everything necessary to sustain our physical lives. Now in the fifth and sixth petitions, we have the spiritual needs of this life. By the way, let me just say in passing that the fact that there's only one petition that deals with our physical lives and there are two petitions that deal with our spiritual lives, with our souls, means that there's something wrong when we spend more time on our bodies than we do on our souls. It's a very real temptation a lot of Christians face. Notice the last petition, verse 13. This is the sixth one that, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks after Resurrection Sunday we'll look at. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This petition has to do with our constant need of spiritual protection and personal holiness. But today I want us to look back at the fifth petition that deals with the reality of sin and 
the need of confession. Look at verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. In those very familiar words, we find the crucial issue of confession of sin. In this fifth petition, Jesus teaches us that there are three crucial responses to sin. Three crucial responses to sin in our lives. Let's look at those responses together. First of all, we must acknowledge the reality of our sins. He says, forgive us our debts. Although in regeneration, in the moment of salvation, when God made us new, when He gave us a new heart, in the words of of Jeremiah, at that moment we received new desires and new dispositions. We had a complete change. We are a new person in Jesus Christ. Although that is true, it did not change the reality of our sinfulness. There is a part of you, believer, that remains unredeemed. Its beachhead is in your body, which has not been redeemed, but it's more than just your body. Paul calls it the flesh. It is ever with us. It is a reality that you will never get away from. For the believer, the cancer of sin is no longer growing. It's no longer advancing. In fact, if you're truly in Christ, the tumor is shrinking, to use that analogy. You are seeing a decrease in the pattern of sin in your life and an increase in the pattern of righteousness. But the tumor has not been eradicated. 1 John chapter 1 speaks of those who claim otherwise. In 1 John 1 verse 8, it says, If we say that we have no sin... That's probably a claim to have no inherent disposition to sin, not to have fallenness. We are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, this is probably a claim not to have sinful acts. Now, this person probably isn't saying they do nothing wrong. Instead, they're saying something like this. I'm basically a good person and occasionally I do bad things. Jesus says, if that's your claim, you make God a liar and His Word is not in you. If you say, you know, I'm, a good, I'm basically a good person. Yeah, occasionally I do things I shouldn't do, but John says, you're calling God a liar and His Word isn't in you. As long as we remain in this life, we will be plagued by personal sin. Now here in Matthew, Jesus describes the nature of our ongoing struggle with sin in two graphic words. Notice the first one down in verses 14 and 15. It's the word transgressions. Literally, trespass. The Greek word means a falling beside. It refers to a false step leaving the path you're supposed to be on. It's crossing of the boundaries. It pictures you walking between two fields on public property. And at some point, you leave the path you're supposed to be on. You trespass. You step across the boundary into someone else's property. That's how sin is described. It is leaving the path of righteousness. It is trespassing where we have no right to be. The other word that's used here is used in verse 12. In our text for this morning, it's the word debts. Now this is a very interesting word because of what it shows us about 
Jesus in his life. You see, there's a clear, there's clear evidence, I should say, in the New Testament that Jesus, while he was here, spoke three different languages. He spoke Hebrew, the language in which the Old Testament was originally written and usually read in the synagogues. He spoke Greek, which was the trade language of the first century world. We see him interacting with Greeks. And he also spoke Aramaic. This would have been the most common language Jesus would have spoken. It was the language spoken in the land of Israel after the Babylonian captivity. Well, the Aramaic word for sin is debt. It's debt. Originally, the word was used of a literal financial obligation. Later, it came to be used metaphorically of something that we owe to people or we owe to God. So Matthew, as he writes his gospel, having heard Jesus speak in Aramaic and use the word debt for sin, simply uses the Greek word for debt, and now as it's translated into English, we get the word debt as well. This comes straight from the mouth of Christ, as all the Scripture does. We owe God is the picture behind this word. Now, obviously, we understand we owe God everything, right? He made us. He is the one who sustains us, who provides everything that we need. As Paul says, He gives to all life, breath, and all things. But that's not the debt Jesus is referring to here. Because notice, the debt here needs to be forgiven. Luke makes it crystal clear. Because in Luke 11.4, where he describes Jesus' teaching of this prayer on another occasion, a few months later, Luke puts it this way. Jesus said, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So he uses both pictures, sin and, or he uses both words, I should say, sin and the picture of debt. Debts then, listen carefully, Debts is a word picture of human sin. Exactly what does it picture? Here's the idea behind it. You owe God, as I do, perfect obedience. He created you, He made you, and you owe Him your obedience. He sustains your life, He gives you everything you have. And He has told you what He expects of you. He has told you in this word that He's written and given to us, And he's even, according to Paul in Romans 2, written the substance of what you owe him on your heart. You know that because even though our conscience is a flawed tool, how often has your conscience like mine says, you did wrong? God's told us. When we fail to render that obedience to God that we owe him, when we fail to render to him that perfect obedience that is his due, We accumulate debt to God. Before we came to Christ, we were not only in debt to God, we had accumulated a debt that we could never have repaid. Hopefully in a couple of weeks when we look at verses 14 and 15, I'll take you to Matthew 18. And in Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable. And in that parable, He draws a word picture to illustrate the debt that each of us has accumulated to God. As you sit here this morning, you may think to yourself, look, you know, He's talking about sins. I I don't feel like I'm that bad a person. I don't feel like I've really accumulated any debt with God. Well, that may be how you feel, but that's not the reality. Jesus describes the reality in this parable. Because in the parable, there is a man who has accumulated debt to his Lord. And... 
the man represents every one of us. And in that parable, Jesus said, this man accumulated a debt equal to 150,000 years of wages for the average worker in the first century. Let me say that again. 150,000 years of debt. Jesus says, that's you and the debt you owe God. Now think about that for a moment. What that means is if that man representing us could work every day of his life and instead of having to pay any other bills, he could take 100% of what he earns and put it toward the debt he had accumulated, it would take him 2,000 lifetimes to pay off the debt. That's Jesus' picture of you and me and the debt we have accumulated with God. You see, the reason it's that high, we look at our sins of commission. That is, our acts of disobedience. And those are bad enough, but we look at those and say, well, you know, maybe today I committed two or three sins. Let me tell you how God looks at it. Jesus says the whole law is summarized in two basic laws. You remember? Number one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Number two is love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me ask you a question. How often have you sinned against those commands? The answer is every moment you have taken breath. You and I have accumulated a massive, unpayable debt. And by the way, if you're not in Christ, even as you sit here this morning, you are accumulating debt. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2, verse 5. He says, because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That's a frightening statement. Paul says, listen, you think everything's fine, you know, because God hadn't done anything yet, He must be okay with you. He says, you better think again, you're accumulating debt, and someday you're going to pay for that debt with the wrath that God will bring. Every day an unbeliever lives without repentance, he is accumulating a greater debt and God's greater wrath, Paul says. But here's the good news. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, He paid your debt in full. Look at Colossians chapter 2. I love the way Paul describes this here. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, when you were dead, that is spiritually dead, in your transgressions, your acts of rebellion, your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you weren't set apart to God. When you were dead, God made you alive together with Christ. He regenerated you. He made you new at the moment of salvation. And notice, in doing that, He forgave us all our transgressions. Now, how did he do that? Look at verse 14. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. That expression, certificate of debt, in the ancient world was used very specifically to refer to a handwritten promissory note, an IOU. Now, what did we owe God? What was the certificate of debt showing what we owed God? Notice verse 14, consisting of the decrees against us. God's laws. 
You and I had accumulated this massive debt which we could never repay because we had violated his law as often as we had taken breath. When Sheila and I bought our first piece of property in California, we sat in a small escrow office somewhere and for an hour and a half one morning we signed our names. You've been there and done that. You have property. We signed away our oil rights. We signed away our mineral rights. We signed away our firstborn child. The truth is, to this day, I have no idea what I really committed to that morning. I just kept signing. But one thing was sure, we had committed to pay a ridiculous amount of money for something that was not much larger than a tool shed. And I remember lying in bed that night feeling the incredible weight of the debt that I had just accumulated. Multiply that an infinite number of times, and that was the debt we owed to God. Before we came to Christ, we owed a debt to Him that could never be repaid in 2,000 lifetimes or in eternal punishment. But notice verse 14. He canceled out the certificate of debt. God canceled our debt. And here's what's really important. Notice He didn't do this simply by tearing up our debt and pretending that we never had a debt. But He did it, notice the end of verse 14, by nailing it to the cross. In other words, by having Jesus pay the debt in full. Pilate nailed one thing to the cross, but God nailed something entirely different. God nailed a perfect comprehensive record of every sin you have ever or will ever commit. He nailed it to the cross and for those hours He poured out His just wrath on Jesus so that Jesus paid in full your debt. It's gone. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 6. In this text and in Luke 11, the two accounts of the Lord's Prayer, all three words for sin... Debts, transgressions, and sins are all plural. Because every day, without exception, we commit many different sins. Sins of commission, that is, active sins committed against God's law. And sins of omission, that is, things we're supposed to do that we don't do. Dutch theologian Herman Witsius wrote this, We are chargeable with debts. Debts of every description, original, imputed, inherent, and actual. Debts of omission and commission, of ignorance, infirmity, and deliberate wickedness, without limits and without number. That's our debt. The fact that Christ uses a financial word here in verse 12 to describe our sins points out our spiritual bankruptcy. And that takes us right back, doesn't it, to the picture in the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, the beggars in spirit, those who realize they have no assets to pay their debts, and all they can do is beg God to forgive them. That's where you start in the Christian life. If you still think you have something that can pay your debts, then you're not a believer. It's only the person who comes to realize they have absolutely no way to retire the debt they've accumulated, and they just need God's forgiveness. During a visit to India, now a number of years ago, back in the mid-90s, my host took me to a Hindu temple. 
it was out on an island just off the coast, and there was a causeway that led out to it. And all along this causeway, there were beggars. One of them still is emblazoned in my mind because it's not a scene that we see very often. There was a man there begging who had neither arms nor legs. He was just a stump of a man. He could do absolutely nothing for himself. All he could do was ask his friends to deliver him there and then to beg. That's a perfect picture of our spiritual condition before God. We have no personal merit. We have no effort that we can make that will pay the debt. We have nothing that we are and nothing that we can do that will pay our debt. All we can do is beg, ask God to forgive our sin and to restore our relationship to Him. It's the picture Jesus tells in the parable of the of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 when the tax collector he describes there at the temple not even lifting up his eyes to heaven but beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This fifth petition is a cry for mercy and grace. Mercy, God, don't treat me as I deserve to be treated. And grace, God, give me instead, in fact, what I don't deserve. By the way, you see this attitude in all prayers of confession in the Scripture? Read those great prayers of confession. Read Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, Psalm 32 that we read this morning. Or what about Psalm 51? You remember how David begins that psalm? He doesn't say, you know, God, forgive me because, you know, I've, I've really served you most of my life. And no, he says what? Be gracious to me, O God. God, be good to me even though I don't deserve it and forgive me. Daily, we are to acknowledge to God the reality of our sinfulness. There's a second biblical response to our sins that our Lord teaches us here in verse 12, and that is we must understand the nature of forgiveness. There are professing Christians who don't think that we as Christians should pray this prayer. The reasons that people give fall into two categories. Some believe that you can attain spiritual perfection in this life, so you don't need to pray this prayer. We all know both theologically, biblically, and practically that that's ridiculous. But there are others who say you shouldn't pray this prayer to ask forgiveness for your sins because you've already been justified. And in justification, you have received forgiveness for all your sins. And yet... Jesus here commands His disciples and all of those who can legitimately call God Father to pray this petition. This is a pattern for all of us who already know God through His Son to pray. Jesus says, pray, Father, forgive our debts. Now what exactly then are we asking God to do in this prayer? Literally, the Greek word for forgive means to send away or to let go of a debt, not to demand that the person repay the debt, to remit or to forgive. The opposite of forgive, by the way, in this context, is shown to us in John chapter 20, verse 23. There John says, the opposite of forgive is to retain, to hold on to. So we are praying, God, don't hold on to this debt I have accumulated with you. Instead, let them go, send them away, Forgive. Do not demand payment. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, Lord Teach Us to Pray. 
Tom will have part 10 for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, why should believers take such care to confess sin? I mean, after all, aren't sins completely forgiven once and for all time by the atoning work of Christ? You know, we're going to talk about that further in our next study, but I think it's important to recognize the difference. You know, the way the New Testament describes forgiveness is we first of all need forgiveness in the courtroom of the judge, and that's what happens when we come to faith in Christ. We are forgiven in the courtroom of his justice. The gavel comes down. We're declared once and for all pardoned of our sins, declared right with him. But then we go home with the judge, and he becomes our father. And now we need a different kind of forgiveness. We need the kind of forgiveness that happens between a father and a son when we break his heart, when we disobey his law. And so we come now on a daily basis acknowledging our sin and seeking the forgiveness of the father. No longer the judge, but the Father. That's what we come to him for on a daily basis and experience that forgiveness. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.